If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19. Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Ted O'Connell. I want to remind our listeners that this is a rapidly evolving topic, and so anything we are discussing may be changing over the coming days and coming weeks, and just a little uh, caution to um, be aware of that. My guest today is Adam Goodkoff, a fourth-year medical student who has recently matched into emergency medicine and is about to find out where he will be pursuing his residency training in just a day or two. Adam is the co-founder and lead content creator at The MedLife, a platform created to connect healthcare professionals, students, and aspiring students from around the world. They have a YouTube channel designed to bring various medical backgrounds together in one community, bridging the gap between various healthcare professions. Adam is also an Instagram and TikTok medical influencer and can be found at See the Med Life. Adam is also the Assistant Vice Chair of the Emergency Medicine Residents Association Education Committee, and he is also involved at the Massachusetts General Hospital Laboratory for Digital Implementation Sciences. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to tell your audience about yourself? I appreciate that. Uh, warm welcome. Thank you very much. Um, no, I, I think the only extra thing, I, I do a little bit of work at ALEM, which is Academic Life and Emergency Medicine. The folks over there also deserve the credit. So thank you to them for having me and, and uh, kind of helping out with the education in emergency medicine in, in that social space. So super excited for that in the coming year and excited to talk with you today about uh, the novel coronavirus. Great, Adam. Uh, your experiences as a student with a lot of experience in the emergency department, as an Instagram personality and a connector of health professions, I think will be really helpful for our audience. And I'm looking forward to hearing what you're going to teach our listeners. So do you mind just by starting and telling us a little bit about your origin story, things like what inspired you to go into medicine? How did you decide to choose emergency medicine as a specialty? How did you become such a presence on Instagram? What led to the development of your platform, The Med Life, plus any other parts of the story that you want to tell us about? Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. I think, you know, my story is kind of like a lot of students that go into medicine. I, I kind of had had a young interest from a young age, and it was really emergency medicine and EMS that got me involved. And I got plugged in 
uh, doing fire really early on because I was actually too young to even get my EMT certification. I was about 15 when I started. Uh, there was nothing in New York State at the time that you could get certified for. So I went with the fire guys and a great group of people, but I went to my first fire and quickly realized that was not the course that I wanted to go down in life. So uh, I love doing the EMS calls and I uh, turned 16, got my what we call certified first responder, got plugged in with the EMS agency and kind of the rest was history. I uh, went up through there, got really involved in teaching and knew that uh, I loved being a part of medicine. And, you know, to me, it never felt like work. I loved being kind of on the ambulance and taking care of patients. And so, you know, uh, it kind of became clear cut that, that med school is where I wanted to go with it. And, and to kind of transition, I guess we'll, we'll jump forward and, and skip the kind of career in medical school. The only part that's really relevant is that I did a teaching fellowship, which extended my medical school by one year. And what that gave me was kind of some insight into what faculty life was like, what academic medicine is like. And in particular, obviously, my, my passion for education, I wanted to do more and, and reach more students. And uh, I had done some, some blogging in the past. We tried a YouTube channel without much success early on. And, uh, you know, towards the end of my teaching fellowship, I, like I said, I wanted to reach more. And so we decided to try YouTube again, and it was, it was going slow. And um, my buddy who I do the, the YouTube with actually said, I think you should try Instagram. It's really popular. Um, and obviously I had a personal Instagram, but so we, we started this kind of medstagram um, that everyone else was doing and kind of modeled it after the idea was let's look the Dr. Mike part, but let's, let's bring some education here and let's bring some value to, you know, a lot of the students from around the world and around the country. And it, it just took off. I wish I had a, an A plus B. I'd probably be rich if I did for, for how to, you know, kind of become quote unquote Instagram famous. And I, I don't, you know, I don't like that term necessarily influencer. It's a, it's a tough, uh, tough phrase. I don't know what defines popular on there, but I, I just kind of pride myself on bringing, you know, quality information to a lot of my followers in, in all different walks of medicine and, and different walks of life from around the world. It's been really incredible. Just the other day, very small world story. There's someone from South Africa who happens to know someone that I grew up with um, that found me on there. So uh, that's been an incredible opportunity to connect with a lot of folks uh, interested in medicine. And with the MedLife, it was kind of a an iteration of that. I realized, you know, a lot of people are out for themselves and these medical influencers, like like you said, it's, it's kind of that self-serving um, platform. And even though you're helping people, it's, it's still about you. And I wanted to make it bigger. I wanted to kind of cross the boundaries of doctors only talking to doctors and nurses only talking to nurses. And so we kind of branched out, uh, brought on a nurse, a PA, a PT, and then dentistry as well. And we actually have a guest blog where we feature, you know, uh, pharmacy and all sorts of other specialties to kind of really tie everyone together and, and represent the true makeup of our healthcare system and, and everyone that, you know, deserves a credit. So that's kind of the, the, the whirlwind from how I got into to where we are today and I guess uh, how we're talking. Yeah, that's great. I've been watching you on Instagram for a while and reading your posts and and checked out the med life. And when looking at it, you can really see it come through, especially through Instagram, that you're using that as a mechanism to teach people and kind of amplify that teaching. And also as a way to help students try to smooth their path a little bit, show them the path into medicine and healthcare, and then connect across professions. So it looks really great. And I'm glad you're on this podcast because that's what we are trying to do is educate our audience. So they're getting credible information from experts in the fields of medicine, public health, epidemiology. So let's get right into it then in terms of some of the things we can talk about um, regarding COVID-19. So as someone who spends a lot of time in the emergency department, what are the top three things you would tell our audience to help them and their loved ones stay safe during this pandemic? Yeah, so that that's a, a great hot topic right now. And I think the number one, you're going to see it everywhere. And I'm just going to reiterate it because it's that important is to please wash your hands. 
Um, you know, there's nothing more important that we can do. Um, arguably, social distancing is is up there, but uh, you know, washing your hands is, is going to be the most important thing you personally can do. And obviously, if you're sick, not going out, and that that leads into um, my number two, which is you know, please, please to everybody, think of the big picture. Um, and this is actually to any of the younger listeners too. I get it. I'm I'm not that old yet, and you know, it's spring break. The weather's getting warm. We want to go outside. We want to party, have fun. And you could do that, and you're probably going to get away scot-free. But what's not going to be scot-free is when you come home, you bring that virus to your parents, to your grandparents, and they're going to go to the hospital. And, you know, unfortunately, we're on a course right now where we potentially may not have the resources to treat the patients that we're seeing. You know, that puts us in a difficult position of saying who gets treatment. And so you you may be placing your loved ones in a position where they're, you know, maybe not able to access the care that they really need. And I think I appreciate it's very hard as a young, you know, teen or early 20s to understand that. But I, I really urge you to stay home. It's not fun. Um, trust me, even at my level, I'm, I'm about to graduate medical school. I want to celebrate all of this. And I can't. I'm sitting at home uh, in my parents' house. And it's not particularly exciting. So I really urge everyone to participate in social distancing. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Um, and then number three, like I alluded to, if you're feeling sick, but not seriously ill, um, you're, you know, you're not uh, drastically short of breath, please just stay home. Uh, it's just the same as the flu. A lot of folks will come into a medical office, I'm sure you see this all the time, and want to be tested for the flu, which we obviously do, but it's not going to change the the course of the disease. And even the medications that we have really, um, they've never been shown to affect the mortality and they don't affect really the course either. It's just a few hours difference. Um, so more of the same, if you're on that younger, healthier spectrum and you're not feeling you know, terribly ill, you don't have pre-existing conditions, and you just, you're just feeling kind of crummy, please just stay home. Don't overwhelm the system. Um, proving that we have another 10 cases does nothing. Um, but, you know, freeing up the uh, providers to, to take care of the patients who really are sick uh, makes a huge difference. So I'm um, trying to keep those three in mind. I know it's a little long-winded, but really passionate about those things. And especially, like we mentioned with, with TikTok and Instagram, really trying to reach the younger audiences with these things. Yes, these strategies that you're talking about are incredibly important. And as you say, they really are directed at trying to keep our hospitals and healthcare system from becoming overwhelmed. We don't want to get to a point where the system is overtaxed, where the providers are at their limits, where resources have to get rationed. And that's what your strategies really are all about. So we hear this term flattening the curve uh, over and over. Can you give us an idea what flattening the curve means and what uh, people can do to to make a real difference? Absolutely. So um, flattening the curve is is kind of an epidemiology term um, that has been coined in the media, and now everyone's saying it as if they're uh, they've got a master's in public health. Which you know, disclosure, I don't, and I haven't graduated medical school yet, but I, I'm happy to share my kind of knowledge so far. And, the idea is that um, if we let everyone interact as normal, we are going to have you know healthy individuals that survive just fine, and most people will survive this disease. It's a small percentage number that are are going to die. Um, you know, it's not like we're talking fifty or seventy five percent. This isn't like an Ebola type situation. But flattening the curve allows the the stress on the healthcare system to diminish over time. So while we'll see the virus lingering around a little bit longer, we'll see new cases popping up we'll see less of them at once. And so it's it's kind of hard to draw this mentally in a podcast. But if you think of a kind of a graph that goes straight up and straight down, that's what we'd be on track for without what we're calling social distancing. Um, when we do uh, practice social distancing and do it well, 
we kind of stretch that curve out into a soft hill on both sides. And that hopefully stays below our resource threshold in the hospital, which is our masks, our ventilators, our ICU rooms, and, and our provider well-being. One of the other things that actually hasn't even hit the mainstream yet, which I think um, is very important for people to know, is that you know I have friends that are in quarantine. Um, I know of attendings that are in the ICU, intubated. These are ER providers on the front line that are sick because of this virus, because we don't have the appropriate protective gear. And, and we don't know that much about this virus in some cases. So um, you know, I, I have a friend who's in one program. We'll, we'll leave it at an undisclosed location right now, a big city, and half of his residency class is quarantined at home um, because you know they, they've had direct exposure and they haven't been protected appropriately, and that seriously decreases the the providers available. So it's very important that we try to, as everyone says, flatten the curve. You know, practice the social distancing, as I mentioned. Um, and kind of slow the spread of this down. I know nobody wants to delay life for a, a longer period of time, but it really, really will help the healthcare system. And and one thing kind of in the in the mainstream is, uh, you know, John Oliver did this nice piece. Everyone's very frustrated. And, you know, take 30 seconds, be upset, be angry, because it, it's frustrating. You know, I had a trip planned to Europe that I had to cancel. A lot of people are in the same boat. You know, I obviously have my business with the MedLife and we're always traveling around creating and that's on a complete freeze. We really can't make much content and, you know, do what we love to do, but it's for the greater good. So take 30 seconds, be upset and then kind of move on because this is one time where we really do have to work together and kind of rely on each other to to get through this and to make sure that our system can function. That's an outstanding description of this idea of flattening the curve. And as you were describing, you know, the the big sharp spike and then the the more flatter curve it made me think like if you were going to describe it it's it's a matter of if would what would you like to do if you were a skier be up on this massive mountain like mount everest and be asked to go down that or a little bunny slope that's much smaller grade it's just an easier thing to do especially you know if you're a great skier that's one thing but right. for most of us like take take the uh, softer approach absolutely yeah. So Adam, um, tell me what are emergency departments doing to keep their medical staff safe during this crisis? Well, I think they're doing the absolute best that we we can. And that's kind of the the emergency medicine mantra is do the most that you can with with whatever you've got. And, uh, you know, we're, we're using as much uh, personal protective equipment as possible. Um, N95 masks, which are for the general public filtering about 95% of particles that are uh, greater than I believe it's about 0.3 microns. So that does filter most viruses, but uh, they're they're limited. And unfortunately, people have really taxed the system in kind of hoarding these in the months before. And supplies are low. And, and the same goes, I mean, we're using face shields and gowns and goggles. Um, I have a, a friend who kind of described to me a story where they're having to reuse these goggles that are uh, actually reusable goggles. And they're just having to try and sterilize them because there's not enough to go around. And there's also been some guidelines put out as to for anesthesia and emergency medicine, we have a unique problem in that we need to intubate people in an emergent setting. It's not controlled. We don't know what their status is. And so um, there's some recommendations and suggestions as to different self-contained kind of ventilation systems and different uh, filters to be put on uh, endotracheal tubes to try and limit the aerosolization of the virus when you're kind of you know pressing into the lungs where that virus can be concentrated. Right. And just for our listeners, you know, in the emergency department or in the operating room, in an emergency department, it's going to be less of a controlled situation. But when you are intubating somebody, but the idea of aerosolization means that the virus gets up into the air 
in close proximity to everybody's face who's trying to help the patient and puts the healthcare practitioners at really high risk of inhaling or get, getting that into their nose or, or eyes for that matter and getting the virus. Is that correct? That, that's 100% correct. And, and as I mentioned, you know, you have to think we're going into work every day dealing with this and we're not asking questions, but these, these providers get sick, or even if they're relatively asymptomatic, they still want to go to work. They can't because that's spreading the virus to people who may not be sick um, and want to be checked out. And, and the thing to remember too, everybody is thinking about uh, COVID-19 right now, but we still have people who have heart attacks during this time, strokes, they're in traffic accidents, all sorts of things. So people still need healthcare. And this is really, like I said, draining not only the resources, but the providers. Folks are having to stay home because there's the concern that they may, you know, carry the virus to another patient. So um, everyone's being, you know, very careful and, and doing the best that we can, but it's certainly a difficult time. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Right. And Adam, too, in episode one, we talked to a virologist named Ken Rosenthal and he talked a bit about viral load and the belief that you know some of the more severe illnesses that we're seeing with covid is related to viral load and if you're up close to a patient and the virus is getting aerosolized right there you probably are more likely to get a heavier viral load than you are if somebody had touched a table and then you happen to touch it after them and so we really do want to protect our healthcare practitioners from that couldn't agree more so there's a trending topic uh, about COVID-19 that I'd actually like us to discuss today. On March 18th, which is the day that we're doing this interview, the World Health Organization recommended that people suffering COVID-19 symptoms should avoid taking ibuprofen. And this recommendation came out after French officials warned that anti-inflammatory drugs such as ibuprofen, these are also called NSAIDs, you'll hear that term thrown around a lot, that that could actually worsen the effects of the virus. As someone who focuses on emergency medicine where anti-inflammatories are pretty commonly prescribed, what can you tell us about this recommendation? So that's a great question. And, and like I said, I do want to clarify, you know, um, I'm certainly not an expert in this area, but uh, from what I've read and, and the papers that I've reviewed and, and what I understand, um, the concern with the NSAID medications is essentially drying out the kidneys or what we would call in medicine, drying out the kidneys. The, the drug um, has a an effect of dehydration on the body, we'll, we'll put it in simple terms. And um, from what I had read from the French authors, they were concerned that this might set the lungs up for kind of the perfect storm to get a severe pneumonia, as well as, um, you know, dehydrating those kidneys and putting them into what we call acute kidney injury or acute renal failure. Um, and, you know, both of those are going to increase your risk of mortality when you're when you're sick. Those are all things that don't help patients in the ICU. Um, and one of the other things that I had read, and again, I will comment on this in a second, is that ibuprofen might kind of dampen the body's response against the virus. Um, this is something that's tossed around a lot with colds, and, and different people have different opinions. Um, I haven't seen anything to date that's uh, proven this in regard to COVID-19 in particular. So I would always defer to what the World Health Organization is suggesting, but um, I just haven't seen the, the hard data that shows that taking 
and NSAID is going to, uh, you know, in particular affect this virus. Um, that said, it's easy enough. It's not like a, a miracle drug, um, you know, for, for viral infections. So you can certainly do something like Tylenol instead. And, uh, and that should give you some relief as well. But we do absolutely prescribe anti-inflammatories and use them a lot in the emergency department. It's a fantastic drug and it's, it's something to consider. Um, and I know uh, one of the other things we kind of mentioned that we might touch on is this uh, new concern about ACE inhibitors. Um, and a lot of folks are, are really concerned, should they be taking their ACE inhibitor? Does that have any effect with the virus? And I did some digging into that. And basically, uh, what I understand is that the original SARS virus used the ACE2 molecule to enter the cell. Now, we're getting kind of out in the weeds, but it's every virus has a way of getting inside of our cells. It basically tricks that outer membrane as as to how it's going to open up and allow the virus to come inside and, and create an infection. And uh, that was through that ACE2 receptor. And so there was concern that if you were taking a drug called an ACE inhibitor for high blood pressure that interfered with that, that you may somehow kind of affect the ability of the virus to enter the cell and, and put yourself at risk. Again, there's not any hard evidence on this, but I just wanted to address it because it is coming up in the media a lot. And as of right now, there's no evidence or suggestions that you need to stop taking your ACE inhibitor. Um, and we do know that high blood pressure may be a, a risk factor for severity in this disease. So I certainly would not be getting off of your ACE inhibitor just because of reading these articles here and there. And I would, again, defer to the World Health Organization and the CDC to come out with an official recommendation for that. Right. And to just kind of try to distill it down a little bit, at this point, the concern about ACE inhibitors or even their their sister medication, angiotensin receptor blockers or ARBs, is more of a theoretical concern that they're looking into. So definitely no need to stop those medications. With the NSAIDs, you mentioned that you haven't seen the data, nor have I. I don't actually know anybody who's seen the data behind the recommendation, but this is a very reputable worldwide organization in the World Health Organization making this recommendation uh, about ibuprofen and probably about NSAIDs in general. So I think, as you said, Tylenol, much safer option. We won't get into it in any detail, but NSAIDs like ibuprofen have all kinds of other potential medication interactions and effects on kidneys and the gastrointestinal tract. So just safer at this point to stick with Tylenol if you need something for your fever, your headache, your muscle aches during early phases of this pandemic. Absolutely. And I, and I always, the uh, future emergency medicine physician in me uh, has to say to, to be careful with Tylenol. It's actually a pretty dangerous drug um, if, if not following the instructions on the bottle. So always uh, follow the instructions on the bottle and any questions, please consult your physician, give them a call. Um, because that drug as well, you know, if you're not feeling well, it's very easy to take too much of that drug, which also causes its own set of problems. Absolutely. So while we're on the topic of anti-inflammatories and, and really trying to provide education here, maybe you could tell us some other medications that fall into this category of anti-inflammatories, because we probably do want people avoiding all of these, if at all possible, if you think you potentially have COVID. So what other medications fall into that category? Absolutely. There, there are a lot of medications. Uh, some of the popular ones that you know folks have heard of are Toradol or Ketorolac. That's something we use all the time in the emergency department. It's a, it's a nice, strong um, injected medication. But things like Advil, Aleve, Motrin, um, Celebrex is often used for, for joints, um, Diclofenac or Voltaren gel. Um, those are all going to contain the same anti-inflammatory, that non-steroidal uh, medication, the NSAID that we spoke about. So you want to avoid those drugs. And of course, there is a much longer list. Um, 
And I have not checked the World Health Organization's website, but I'm sure they probably do have more information if you're looking for specific drugs on that. Great. Great. Now, sometimes doctors like to nerd out a little bit and kind of think about the pathophysiology or the mechanisms behind the way or the way things happen and, and how body processes and medications interact. And this idea of the anti-inflammatories is actually a pretty interesting development because in theory, an anti-inflammatory should help decrease the inflammatory process involved with a COVID-19 infection. And as we mentioned, is also used to treat symptoms like fever, headache, and muscle aches. So just to state again, what should people take for these symptoms if we're recommending that they avoid anti-inflammatories? Yeah, absolutely. I I think Tylenol is still a great option. Um, It's a great, what we call an antipyretic or an anti-fever drug. Um, And it will help with the aches and pains. And, And don't forget about the things that are not necessarily prescribed to you. So you can get heating pads, you can try ice, um, stretching, none of those things to my knowledge are going to harm you in this case. Um, you know, and if you're having a sore muscle, a sore neck, things like that, there's nothing wrong with putting a heating pad on. And of course, if you, if you're using cold, you want to make sure that it's not direct and you don't want to do any more than about 15 minutes or so. If you're using something like ice, you don't want to obviously burn your skin. So, um, you know, heating pads, cooling as well is totally fine. And then in terms of medication, the Tylenol would be, would be very helpful for the fever as well. Great. Thank you for that. Of course. Uh, so Adam, you've, uh, in looking at your resume and your background, you've done some work with a team at Massachusetts General Hospital on Reddit, looking into the pregnancy side of COVID. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so it was interesting, actually, it's my first time being part of what they call an AMA or an Ask Me Anything. So this was uh, led by Dr. Ali Raja and Dr. Uh, Shuhan He. And both of them were kind of running this. And I was on the on the back end with some other folks doing the the research along with them to, to make sure the answers were all fact checked. ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, just actually released an official statement on this. At the time, it was kind of in limbo, but um, there were a couple preterm births in China that were reported. It's not enough to say that uh, COVID-19 is is causing preterm births, um, but it's enough to kind of create warning and, and keep an eye out. It's not something that we can really do much about. And the good thing is it doesn't seem like pregnant women are at any increased risk for contracting the virus over anyone else. So, uh, you know, the same uh, kind of Advice would apply, wash your hands, avoid, uh, you know, large crowds, social distance and, and kind of, you know, mind your own business for a little bit and stay away from others. It's probably the safest bet. Um, a lot of the other questions that were asked were about, can the virus cross, cross the placenta, um, you know, inside your body to the baby? And um, we just don't have the data for that. Unfortunately, it's too new. And uh, it, that kind of echoes with breastfeeding questions as well. Right now, it seems like the concern is actually more of the mother passing droplets, which would be any kind of nasal secretions or oral secretions, coughing, things like that to the baby rather than the breast milk itself. But um, as the ACOG uh, states, you know, we really don't have the data on this yet. So um, taking a a cautious uh, look at this is kind of the best way to do it. Right. And just so our listeners know, we do have an obstetrician lined up to talk with us about some of this in even more detail and, and give us a perspective kind of on big picture on all of these topics related to COVID and pregnancy and breastfeeding. Um, so we will be looking forward to that discussion. Adam, you've also done some work looking at the long-term effects of COVID infection, particularly related to lung scarring and progression. 
Can you tell us what you know about this topic? So that's a great question. And there's a lot of concern around the lung, long-term effects, especially in the lung and lung scarring that's kind of been going around in the media. Um, one of my friends texted me kind of way back saying he was really concerned if he were to get infected, that there'd be permanent lung scarring. And that kind of set my interest in this topic in that AMA that we did, you know, gave me the time to research into it. And we found a few papers out of China talking about, you know, both the diagnostic criteria and what the lungs look like on CAT scan or a CT scan. Uh, but there was also a paper that followed a patient from day one of infection all the way through day 31. And the reason they followed 31 days was because that was when the infection resolved. So around 19 days is when they started to see that really bad scarring that everybody was really concerned about. And they did some follow-up CAT scans on this patient. And by day 31, they actually saw a complete or near complete resolution. So it looks like uh, this does not have a long-term damage on the lungs uh, like people were concerned about. Well, that's great to hear. Again, all of this is so new that we probably will need more time to be looking into some of these things. You know, looking at a patient like that, maybe a need for some pulmonary function tests longer term to make sure that the actual function of lungs has returned to normal. Um, so really interesting topic. It sounds like maybe we'll need a, a pulmonologist to come on in, in, in a few weeks. I think, I think that'd be very interesting. Yeah. Great, Adam. Uh, well, before we start wrapping up here, is there anything else at all that you would like to add about COVID-19 for our audience? No, I think, um, you know, the, the main thing to remember is just, you know, try not to panic. Um, this is, this is uncomfortable for everyone. It's not exciting. To, to anyone. We're, we're stuck in our homes. We're not out with our friends. And, and think of the healthcare workers, too, that are going to work every day, knowing that we really don't know everything about this. And, and they're really my friends and, and colleagues who are in the emergency department are truly, um, it's, it's admirable what they're doing because uh, they're taking care of people and, and maybe not necessarily having the best protection. So if you see someone, thank them. Um, and the other thing that I just have to mention, is, especially I've seen it on, on social media, is, is please, um, you know, do not engage in xenophobia, which would be you know, uh, any type of, of racism um, towards towards people. This is this is not a Chinese virus. Um, the virus may have originated there, but it is a, a SARS type COVID virus um, from 2019. So so please call it as such. And, you know, nobody is um, in any position to to kind of, um, you know, look down on anyone else based on the way that they look in, in these times. We all need to support each other. And I think uh, that's the only way we're going to be able to get through this, in, you know, in, in one piece. That's very, very well said, Adam, and I appreciate the sentiment there at the end. Uh, I want to thank you on behalf of the podcast and our listeners for joining us. I think you provided some really outstanding content and value for our listeners and hopefully have made them all a little bit more educated about this topic. We really appreciate it. Wish you all the best as you finish up medical school and head off to emergency medicine residency and make sure you do keep yourself safe in the emergency department. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And thanks again for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Adam. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.